second half of Alabama's only Union Talk Radio program. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. And uh, we've got some great stuff for you today, folks. We're going to be looking at a CNN columnist telling us to work longer. Uh, Lots of uh, great there. Reacting to a Starbucks hearing uh, in the Senate. And talking to some railroad machinists about um, running for the top offices of their union. So, yeah, definitely got a lot going on. you know, before we get into it, I did want to remind folks that we have Shop Talk. That is our new Thursday morning episode every Thursday morning. That's right. Um, yeah. What did you do on Shop Talk so, a few days ago? Yeah. Just this past Thursday, I had Professor Max Frazier. He is an assistant history professor at the University of Miami. He uh, formerly wrote for The Nation, Descent Magazine, all sorts of cool publications. Uh, and he talked a little bit about his, you know, journey in studying the working class, uh, and specifically about his new book he has coming out this fall called Hillbilly Highway, uh, all about, uh, really this, this migration trend of working Southern working class folks moving to the Rust Belt, uh, into the Midwest to, you know, enter the manufacturing workforce, so he looked at, you know, at some small towns like Jamestown, Tennessee, for example, and he kept running into people uh, up in Indiana mm. who have their roots down here. And so he, he you know, the story sort of uh, fell into his lap and, and, and became uh, a book that he's releasing this fall. But, yeah, we had a great chat about labor history, um, including some of the stereotypes, you know, that have, have come out about the South and, you know, especially as it relates to labor so uh really enjoyed that. I was definitely feeling under the weather on Thursday morning, so I was thankful that Max was a great guest and he could just sort of take it away. Um, but that's the sort of thing we do on Shop Talk. We do history, we do education, we do training. Anything that's labor, education, history, or training, uh, Shop Talk is the place for that. Our goal is that, you know, at least one episode a month, hopefully, you could share with your union. Um, whether it's something in the labor history realm that you find interesting or if it's more uh, tailored towards the training and education piece. For example, last week I did a session on how to get engaged as a new member or how to get engaged as a member, period, right? Not even necessarily a new member, but someone who's looking to get involved in their union. What does that mean? How do you do that, right? So that's that was out uh, last week. should be available as a podcast. It comes out every Thursday morning, streaming on Facebook and YouTube, and then released as a podcast, uh, you know, in the following days. 
So if you have ideas, uh, send them our way. I've already received some really great topic suggestions, uh, some of which I think are going to be in next week's episode. So, uh, yeah, appreciate the yeah, folks tuning into that. Yeah, have you got next week's episode kind of planned out roughly already? Roughly, yeah. I think we're going to take a look. It's the first week of the our first episode of the new month. So, of course, we're going to look at some April anniversaries in labor history. Uh, and then I've got I've got an idea about some local labor history, uh, thanks to some inspiration from the comments section. So, you know, stay tuned for that. Awesome. Well, I look forward to listening. Um, folks definitely ought to check that out. Uh, live every Thursday morning and uh, drops as a podcast the following Monday. So. Absolutely. <clears throat> Absolutely. So uh, one thing that we wanted to talk about, and this was <clears throat> this is kind of a, an opportunity for some education as well, is the NPR workers unionized a while back and they are still in contract negotiations. And uh, the union says, the workers say that uh, management is stalling. They're not negotiating in good faith and uh, they're not, uh, you know, giving them a fair contract. And so instead of um, taking the step right now to go on strike, what they're doing is uh, what's called a work to rule campaign. And so specifically in their instance, they've said on Twitter that they will be refusing to pick up work outside of their job description. They're going to be working uh, their scheduled hours and not a minute more mm -hmm. and taking company slack off of our phones and setting away messages when they're not at work. Love it. So that's, you know, uh, that's a really good uh, work to rule campaigns are really cool because everybody's job has rules or expectations that are beyond its scope that the job it's really difficult to accomplish the job without um the, you know if you've been working <clears throat> for a place long enough you know that there are shortcuts that it is in in the manual you know it's supposed to be done a certain way but nobody does it that way because it takes way too long or you're everybody knows that you know maybe you're scheduled from eight to four but in actuality everybody works till six or uh you know you're Answering, you know, like taking uh, slack off of your phone. You're answering messages all hours of the day and all hours of the weekend, every day, all day and all night. You're on you're on call, basically doing work at all hours and you're not being compensated for that. Right. That's an expectation, <clears throat> but it's not in the job description. It's not in the scope of work. And it's uh, but but you do it to make sure that the work product gets done, to make sure that you're able to have that deliverable on time, to make sure that your company uh, continues to perform and continues to excel because most workers want to be able to deliver that deliverable. They want to be able to be successful and have that product. And so sometimes we are willing to go above and beyond and, uh, you know, and below in some cases, you know, um, to make sure that the job gets done and the job gets done well. But when we're being taken advantage of and when, especially during a contract campaign where, um, you know, where we're not being respected at the bargaining table, then work to rule campaigns are a really good way to 
exactly follow the rules to the T as kind of a first step of escalation leading towards potentially a strike if it ha- if it get- if it has to get to that level because nobody wants to work- nobody wants to strike right everybody wants to stay at work continue collecting their paychecks and all this type of stuff but sometimes strikes are necessary and so right and and when strikes are necessary it's usually the culmination of right. multiple things th- that have escalated you know a series of escalating actions that culminates in the strike uh, as part of an organizing campaign and so yeah I, I, I agree with you work to rule is an excellent way to uh, organize in the workplace to possibly prepare for a strike should it have to come to that mm-hmm. um, you know, the thing about work to rule that's so great is you're not violating anything. Right, right, you right. are following the rules. Uh, right. You know, here uh, one example that, of course, sticks with me is teachers. Mm. Teachers are often scheduled, at least around here in this area. Their, their contract hours, per se, is 7.45 a.m. to 3.15 p.m. In reality, of course, right. they're all there before 7.45 a.m. They're all there past 3.15 p.m. They work far more than a seven-and-a-half-hour day. Um, but what if? Mm. What if all the teachers at a school decided, you know what, we are going to show up at 7.45, and we are going to walk out of here at 3.15, and no, you're not getting any emails afterwards. No, we're right. not taking home work to grade. No, we're not going to upload the grades or upload your lesson plans late at night or on the weekends. We will just work when you are technically paying us to work. Right. Uh, Yeah. We'd love to see how that goes. Um, (laughs) I know I've seen, uh, I remember a campaign years back in Hawaii with Hawaii educators who did that. Um, Can't remember all the details, but that's that's one that sticks out in my memory uh, would be Hawaii educators who, who did that. Uh, and what they did it was at 3.15 or, you know, the equivalent time, whenever they were technically released from their contract time, they went out on the road and had a picket in front of the school. Mm. And, of course, by the, you know, there's still parents picking up kids at that right. point. Uh, right. So, yeah, it's there's a lot of opportunity to organize and to build capacity for your union and in your workplace. And like I said, the 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 brilliant beauty of it is you're actually just doing mm-hmm. what you're technically supposed to do, just nothing more. Right. And it helps folks realize how much more they really give mm-hmm. and how much more they've been expected to take on that they're not being compensated for, it's not being accounted for maybe in the policy manual. So um, shout out to the NPR workers for doing what you're doing. Uh, I, I wish you much success. And also, really, uh, I hope folks will learn from this and maybe... You know, maybe there's someone listening who now has the idea of work to rule as a possible campaign tactic. Uh, You'd be surprised how effective it could be. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, next story we've got is uh, there's a CNN writer, CNN columnist and author uh, who, according to her Substack, she writes about uh, women's rights, politics, foreign affairs and law. Uh, other places call her a feminist. Um, you know, so all that sounds good. That sounds good. I, you know, I support feminism. I support when women's rights, uh, you know, maybe women's rights in the workplace, uh, things like that. But are are you familiar with Jen Philip, Jill Filipovich? 
It's one of those names that rings a bell. Like, I'm sure I've seen her byline before, mm. uh, but, you know, not someone I would follow closely by any means. Well, last week on Twitter, she decided to opine about uh, the retirement age. And uh, I'll just read the tweet verbatim for you here. She says, I'm sure I'm opening a giant can of worms here, but uh, it seems fine to raise the retirement age very slightly in nations where populations are healthier and living longer. She ends it with a question mark there. Um, And she does that from Kenya on a safari slash yoga retreat with other writers. Oh, lovely. Lovely. Yeah. Just love to talk about <laughs> cutting benefits for folks while I'm on my safari slash yoga retreat. I mean, in another continent. Yes. Could you? I mean, I just honestly, that baffles the mind to be the idea that you could be sunbathing on the other side of the world and, you know, phone in your hand, tweet away about like how. You know, is it possible that working people have it too good? I wonder if that's the case. Maybe it's maybe it'd be fine if working people had it a little worse. Maybe that would be fine. I mean, how do you it's just super bizarre to me. I'm I'm willing to make a concession here. Okay. I know I'm okay. not normally one for concessions, but I'm willing to make one in this case. Okay, let's let's see. Let's see. Jill and everyone who attended the safari slash yoga retreat, their new retirement age is now 75. Okay. Everybody else, <laughs> we're going to lower it. We're going to lower it. Go. We're going to have a much better retirement age. Uh, I think we should just, just lower it to 60. Why not? Right. Yeah. S- and screw it. Let's go to 60, except for Jill. Jill and her friends, you know, they've enjoyed a safari yoga retreat. Uh, I imagine that that added quite a bit to their quality of life. And so I'm sure they'll have no problem working until they're 75. Right. I mean, how hard is it? Can, can it be really to just crank out some tweets for CNN? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. I could do that. I could probably do that till yeah. 75. I don't know if I would want to, but I probably could. Yeah. Yeah. So she gets to work till 75. I see her point. Um, I'm sure having a yoga retreat means that she's probably healthier than I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, she is more than welcome to, to work very slightly longer. Um, but for the rest of us, no, actually. We, yeah. we aren't down for a cut in our retirement uh not cool yeah uh pittsburgh dude 87 in the chat mentions that life expectancy has fallen in the u.s in the last few years and that's actually uh exactly the point that another progressive uh quote unquote made in the replies to this tweet uh brianna Wu. are you familiar adam with brianna Wu? not really um not really no okay so brianna Wu is uh, from her Wikipedia page. She is an American video game developer and computer programmer. Uh, She kind of came to fame, in my understanding, from Gamergate as one of the oppositional figures to the weird kind of... So she she was maybe one of the women that was being... Yes, yes, yes. Attacked with stupid vitriol by weirdos on the internet? Yeah, that's my understanding. That's my understanding, okay? And so now she is, uh, if you, you know, go find her on Twitter, she is the executive director of uh, Rebellion Pack. And uh, Rebellion Pack is one of these, you know, one of these packs that's supposed to be, uh, you know, like 
oh, we're, we're the fighting progressives. We take no corporate money, they say. They say we take no corporate money. Uh, okay. They've got a code of ethics. Um, all, you know, and so, you know, look, you just you read this and you think, oh, you know, maybe this is a person that's like progressive. Uh, that's what you would immediately think. That would be your immediate assumption there. But uh, she replies. She replies to this tweet of Jill Filipovich's saying, I would normally agree. Question mark, question mark, question mark. But have you seen that uh, life expectancy has actually been falling in the United States? And so, you know, so Brianna comes into this conversation, just this absolutely wild tweet from, you know, one of the most privileged people in the world talking about how working people should maybe work longer. And she is as a, you know, supposedly fighting progressive. She jumps in and says, uh, uh, she jumps in and says, yeah, you know what? I would normally agree with that. I would normally agree that working people might actually have it too good and they should be working longer. But, but now life expectancy in the United States has fallen. So maybe we want to, you know, maybe we want to wait a little while before we tell working people to, uh, uh, to work longer. Just wild. Yeah. So, I mean, I, presumably if life expectancy is not declining somewhere else, you know, right. in Europe, perhaps, um, I, I assume that Miss Wu would prefer they work longer and, and that, have less of a retirement pension. And, and that seems to be what came of their conversation because Jill says, oh, yeah, I know. I was talking about France. And then uh, I, and I guess can't... what? Right. I don't want French workers to take a cut either. Right. Why should they? They should not. And more exactly. power to them for fighting back. Uh, it looks like it's so far not stopped it. Um, but, you know, I, I really have a lot of respect for the, the unions and the workers in France who have been fighting to the nail to, to defend their retirement. Uh, and I think there's a lot we can learn from that. Mm-hmm. Um but it's just, yeah, it's uh, it's just really pitiful when you have these privileged folks literally on vacation. Right. You know, bemoaning how good we have it as, as people in this country. And it's just, uh, they they clearly have a very different reality well, than and most of us experience. Exactly. And, and, you know, I mean, to address it on its own merits, it wouldn't be fine. I mean, if we define fine... As, you know, the world wouldn't end if in France they increased the retirement age from, what is it, 62 to 64? Is that what they're going for? Um, it would not, the end of the world wouldn't happen. That wouldn't be the literal worst thing that could happen to French workers. But the question is, with the increased productivity that workers have all across the country since the Industrial Revolution... Should all of the benefits from that productivity go to the bosses? Should it go to the owners? Should it go to the capitalists, as has been the case since like the 70s and the 80s? Or should workers be able to retain some of it in lengthening, in the form of lengthening our retirement? And the, the answer to that, in my mind, is obviously the latter. Workers should obviously be the beneficiary, at least in part, of the explosive increase in productivity that we have seen over the past five, six, seven, eight, uh, you know, the last century. And, 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 you know, the idea that we would, the, the idea that people, that thought leaders, that politicians would have any other proposal 
is baffling to me. Is baffling to me if it comes from a if you're not coming from just an object uh, from just a evil maximizing place, right? You know, if you want to maximize, you know, the the amount of evil in the world, or you would just want to maximize the amount of 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 money in some rich person's bank account, I can understand that. But if you are at all concerned with a fair distribution of wealth and resources, the idea that working people should have to toil longer is absurd. It is absolutely absurd. In fact, because of the rise in productivity over the last century, we should be looking at lowering the retirement age and ensuring that more people have more leisure time. Or maybe instead of uh, lowering the retirement age, maybe we cut the, the, the work week, right? That's another thing that uh, back in the 30s, John Maynard Keynes said he would anticipate in 100 years that the work week is down to 15 hours because of the increase in productivity. Right. But instead of that, instead of people working less because of the increase in our productivity, we are now, in some cases, actually working more than we did 30, 40 years ago and making the same amount of money and working longer because all of the increases in productivity are going to the top instead of the workers. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think in this day and age, for anyone to discuss cuts to Social Security or other retirement is, is yeah, it, it, totally egregious. Uh, we should not be looking at cuts. We should be looking at enhancements to the benefits, whether yeah. that's, uh, you know, paying more because so many of our seniors are just barely making ends meet, uh, you know, lowering the retirement age. There's a lot we could do and should do to take better care of folks who have labored their entire life. They've spent, you know, the best years of their life laboring in our economy. To say that they should have to work a couple more years, that we should cut their benefits, uh, yeah, there's a reason why French workers are protesting like they are, and I applaud them for doing so, and we should do the same here uh, to defend the Social Security pension and all pensions of folks in this country. Absolutely. And I do, just to be fair, because I'm, I'm interested in fairness, I have an opinion, uh, but I do want to be fair. She did reply to that tweet. Uh, now, Brianna uh, just deleted her tweet. And I asked her because she deleted it after I quote tweeted her and, you know, it was like, what is this? A progressive saying that, you know, working people should work longer. She deleted that tweet after that. Um, and so I asked her if she deleted it because she, uh, you know, realizes it was wrong or why, why did she delete it? And she didn't answer. Um, so who knows what Brianna's views are on this question. Uh, but Jill did reply and she said, quote, uh, lots of totally unhinged vitriol because Twitter is still Twitter, but also lots of interesting responses here. Happy to admit I'm wrong. Hopefully we're all entitled to one truly terrible, poorly thought out, shouldn't have been tweeted take per year. And hopefully I've just used my one up my one up. Seriously, this was dumb of me. Wish I could delete, but I think that'll make folks angrier. So hopefully this will suffice. So, you know, there we go. Yeah. And I do give her credit for saying that. I mean, obviously she didn't have to, she could have doubled down. She didn't, uh, you know, is she just ba backing down because she got piled on? Uh, sure. I'm sure that's what it is. And this is just, you know, some damage control, but that said, yeah, credit where credit is due. She, said something stupid and she's admitted it was stupid uh but unfortunately there are people with much more power than her who have that same stupid idea right 
and she's probably not going to be writing any columns about how uh, we need to lower the retirement age anytime soon. She's probably right. just going to you know, move on. Yeah, that's uh, quite the brand of feminism, though. Right. right, um, right. <laughs> guess it need not apply after a certain age. Huh? Right, right, right. Uh, have we got uh, Reese and Nathaniel in the Zoom? I do believe so. Let me check here and make sure. Yes, we do. So, yeah. All right. Excited about that. Good deal. So, uh, we have on the line Reese Murtog and Nathaniel Tinsley. Uh, they are both running for leadership in the uh, for the District Lodge 19 of the International Association of Machinists. The International Association of Machinists, they have district lodges that are not geographic. They are... Uh, industrial. And so, for example, their District Lodge 141 represents um, airline workers and their District Lodge 19 represents railroad workers. And so uh, so they're running for leadership positions in District Lodge 19. Uh, Nathaniel, Reese, thanks for taking the time to talk to us this morning. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. So uh, let's first start off with, I guess, um, uh, just your what y'all do and your history with the union. And then we'll get into your what you're running for and the campaign and some of your reasons for running. And so, uh, you know, Nathaniel, uh, Nathaniel Tinsley, uh, what do you what's your job and, and what's your history been with uh, the Association of Machinists? Well, my job is a locomotive technician. Um, we work on everything from rebuilding engines um, all the way down to uh, wheel chewing. Um, my uh, history with the union is uh, I've held multiple positions in the local level. Um, I'm also a delegate to the Kansas State Council of Machinists. Uh, currently, I actually am the legislative chairman for the local. Um, I've been involved in uh, labor activism pretty much my entire life. Um, my dad was a union steward of IBW for a major power company out here. Um, you know, I, I advocate for um, labor and, you know, I, I've been involved in many, we could call it uh, protests or um, just labor activism in general. Uh, I've always been involved with that. So that's pretty much in a nutshell. And and where are you from? Kansas City, Missouri is where I live. And I work in the uh, locomotive facility in Kansas City, the Argent, that's an actually in Kansas, uh, Argentine LMIT. Okay, okay. And then uh, Reese Murtaugh, am I pronouncing that right? Murtaugh. Murtaugh. Okay. And I think I actually re uh, recognize you from uh, CNN during the uh, uh, coverage of the rail strike. So uh, we've got a, a big name here <laughs> this morning. Uh, so Reese. Oh, do what? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciated your uh, 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 your segment on CNN. And, and, you know, it's not often that that, you know, places like that will uh, talk to workers so that, that, you know, it's always cool to see that. Uh, so talk to us about about what you do and, and some of your history with the union. So I'm a roadway mechanic for CSX Railroad. I work on heavy equipment that repairs the rails. I spent about half my career as a field mechanic traveling 
from Florida to New York, out west to Indiana, where CSX operates in. I am the local chairman of Lodge 696 out of Richmond, Virginia. We have a big shop here in Richmond where we rebuild heavy equipment. We re-engineer it, we do a welding, we have our own paint shop, and we actually build our own machine right here in Richmond, Virginia from the ground up. So it's pretty, it's a neat building. We have a lot of very smart, experienced mechanics. And um, as a local chairman, I represent them for discipline. I negotiate things on a local level and I'm, I'm their voice on a local level and uh, just try to keep the carriers somewhat fair. Right, right. And I know you've got a, uh, you know, big job on your hands with that. And so uh, what are you running for within the district? Uh, the, the district? I'm going for the top spot. I am going for the president of District Lodge 19. Wow. Okay. And then, uh, Nathaniel, what about you? General chairman, one of nine positions for general chairman. Okay, and so explain to us, you know, Reese is uh, running for the president and then general chairman in the district lodge. What is the, I think people can imagine the president is kind of the top the top guy, but what does a, a general chairman do? A general chairman uh, represents uh, a region, would be like a region of railroaders. Um, it would be, it'll be like, Multiple railroads, CSX, UP, BNSF, um, even some short line railroads. So basically, a ge geographical area, you know, cover, you know, could be a couple thousand people. Uh, you'd be involved in arbitration, um, negotiating local agreements, um, you know, trying to help people stay out of trouble and, and uh, fight for their fight for their jobs, fight for, you know, help them organize uh, on the shop floor, you know, to uh, combat some of the tactics that the carriers use. Gotcha. Gotcha. And so, you know, Reese, I imagine that y'all's campaign in District Lodge 19 and, and y'all are running somebody for, for, I think it is every one of the open positions, if not everyone, then, then most of them. I imagine that a lot of this kind of stems from the recent round of contract negotiations with the railroads. Is that right? Yes, that that was my catalyst. For me, that moment was water boiling over, boiling out of a pot, right? It was just the last, it was a breaking point. Um, the carriers don't negotiate in good faith. The union, our union at least, they've been in cruise control for a long time. We've continually lost ground. And then when we voted to strike, and then we met all the requirements in a Railway Labor Act where we had every legal right to strike. And then when the union just decided on their own to continually push the strike date back, I just, I couldn't just sit by and, and watch it happen and then let them cruise into an election unopposed. So they just, they pissed off the wrong person. And I initially, I was running solo for the president's job just to, just to give them a hard time. And then as my, as my campaign kind of grew and uh, there, was just, there was just a movement of angry railroaders who reached out and I put a team together 
And it's really been just a grassroots, amazing thing happening here. Um, our election process is very, it's very complicated. We've already won two elections just to get on the national ballot. We had to win a nomination election, which required 15% of all local lodges across the nation to endorse us. That's from Texas to Minnesota to California to Virginia. Then we had to win a, run, a runoff vote, which required, we had to win 15% of those. So we won about 20 to 25% of the membership's vote so far. And we, we did not raise any money for those first two elections. It was all just a scrappy grassroots campaign of pissed off railroaders. That's pretty impressive uh, to have no campaign funds and to be able to do that. And, you, and when you're talking about 20 to 25 percent of the membership, how, how many people are we talking about there that have in some way or another supported this campaign uh, by by voting? So there's there's 7,500 members in District Lodge 19. Now, the voting for these union officer elections is very anemic. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. we're overcoming, we're trying to overcome this apathy and that's why we're mm -hmm. in this position of weakness because all the guys that are pissed off don't vote. Part of the reason is the communication from the union is just pathetic. Mm -hmm. The email list they have is 881 members out of 7,500 members. Yes, mm -hmm. so that's, so campaigning, I'm allowed to have access to the email list strike because I'm running a campaign, the DOL, you know, there's DOL laws. Right. Well, you know, the, the email list is 12% of the members, so it's not really helping me out, right? And to make <laughs> things even more interesting, the union decided to use a third-party company to send emails out, and I'm charged $700 to send out an email blast to 881 people. Mm. Brother, we... we we could get you a better deal than that, I think. <laughs> <laughs> That's I'm wild. in the wrong business. Uh, right, seriously, seriously. Man. Oh, my gosh. Wow. It's, it's, it, it's a stacked deck, man. I mean, I've just been... You can almost snail mail people for that amount of money. That's exactly it. It's, it, it's almost the same price. So that's what we're doing now is... The email list is such a joke that we're, we're having to do snail mail. So we just launched a GoFundMe... We've hooked up with a great print shop. It's a Teamsters print shop here in Richmond, Virginia, Gibson Printing. He's mm. hooking us up. He's really helping us out. Hell of a good guy. Um, so that's kind of where we're at is it's just people don't know we exist. And that's that's the battle we're at. Because when people found out about us, they're like, you know, these, we have a website. And they, you know, they like, hell yeah, it's, I want to have a choice. Like, there's an, There should be an election. And uh, yeah. that's kind of the battle we're at right now is just, it's just they can, they're con the union's controlling the information. Hmm. And so, you know, uh, the, and, and so you've had in, in some way or another 20% of the union already vote for you. So you've already had more than the union's email list s support your campaign in some way. Yeah. So we, we're pretty big on social media. There's a lot of these guys, there's a Facebook site where everyone kind of piles in and. A lot of really good debate and open conversation in there. So that that's basically it's in that's been kind of a tool that we have that mm -hmm. they, they don't have, right? Is right, right. 
and and so then I guess I, I I'm interested in some of the you know I understand the I can certainly understand frustration with uh, a union leadership that doesn't seem to be as activated as they really ought to be in an important moment. Um, and so I understand why folks are interested in, in, you know, I, I would understand why folks would be interested in basically anything. Right. But, but I think my understanding is that you are, you're running on, you know, yes, I, I want to change stuff. I want the union to be more active. I want the union, but, but you are, you, my understanding is that you do actually, you put some thought into, you know, what are the specific things that you would be changing as president of district in the lodge 19. Is that right? That's right. So one of the thing is the bylaws, right? So as leaders, we cannot change the bylaws, but we can start a conversation and let people know that these bylaws aren't democratic and they, they need overhaul. So that's part of what we're doing now is we're, we're trying to start this conversation where the, our officers their pay is not linked to what they negotiate in the national freight rail contract. So they have no skin in the game, which is horrible for negotiations, right? Mm. They get a yearly cost of living raise and it, it's, it's really ridiculous. And most of the members don't even know about it. And, and so part of what we're doing is just, we're just trying to educate. But as far as our platform, we are really a simple bunch. We want transparency. We want honesty. So we're obviously trying to improve communication. So the low hanging fruit here is we're going to make an email list if we get elected. You know, I, I, that is a campaign promise. I feel like we can deliver on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, I know that sounds sounds simple, but that's so important. Hasn't been done yet. So yeah. So, <laughs> so independence. We are going to operate the district autonomously. We are all railroaders. We know what's best for us, right? We don't need the IAM, you know, pulling the strings here. We don't need, you know, Biden or Marty Walsh telling them, no, you guys aren't striking. If our if our members vote as leaders, it's our obligation and duty to follow through with this vote. And the last thing is improving the union democracy, just having fair elections. The Department of Labor has these standards of what you can and can't do. But there's nothing that says you can't go above the DOL standards, right? Mm, so, right. you know, fair elections ensure that the officers represent the interests of the members. So it's really, like I say, it's, we're really just getting back to the basics. Um, these, I don't want to speak for all the rail unions, but a lot of the, the leadership has just grown comfortable. Um, it's It's hard to... Obviously, I'm seeing it's hard to, to win an election and there's not much accountability. So I think getting back to these principles will really hopefully improve all the rail unions when they see one doing it. Other ones, you know, might be a cautionary tale to kind of clean their clean up their their own thing. But. Right, right. I saw a TikTok um, the other day. Uh, this guy was recounting an ad for mayor of Philadelphia, and the guy was something like, "I will ensure trash is collected in a reasonable amount of time. I will, I will, you know, collect any car that has been left on the road for more than a month or something like this, you know." And it was like there were three things, and they were, and it was not 
anything, you know, outlandish, but it was just like, that's a reasonable, you know, that seems accomplishable and it's not being done. So that should be done. And, and this, uh, the campaign kind of reminds me of that. Well, and <laughs> you know, the thing to me that I really respect what you guys are doing, because it takes a lot to put yourself out there as a, as a candidate for union office. Um, these union elections, like you said, are often uh, met with a lot of complacency mm. and a lack of participation, a lack of engagement. And frankly, there are leaders over the years who've preferred it that way. And, you know, what I believe is that it's up to militant rank and filers to democratically revitalize our unions, whether that's on the rails or in the schools, in the factories, wherever it is. It seems to be an issue we have in our labor movement, and we have to really revitalize things from the bottom up because these unions are institutions that have been beleaguered by apathy and atrophy over time. And, you know, I think it's up to, to us, the, the militant activists, the, the workers who are paying attention, the workers who get pissed off like you, mm. I think it's up to us to, to save the labor movement from the bottom up. Uh, and I think, you know... Y'all are y'all are an example of of how you can do that by by challenging, by ensuring there is a choice in union elections, by presenting a platform, and because I remember running for an election and I actually had a platform and people were confused because they didn't know that that's something that was done, um, you know. It so talk you know talk about kind of the low hanging fruit and stuff. So I know what you, I know what you're talking about there and. Uh, so, yeah, I really applaud the efforts and, and applaud you guys stepping out and, and doing that because we need a lot more folks willing to step up and do the same. Yeah. And, and you know, Nathaniel, he was talking about some of the reasons that, that he started. And, and, it, and it sounds like uh, Reese kind of, you know, got the ball rolling on this. But is there anything else that you wanted to add as to why you decided to join or to, to flesh out any any of the other uh, motivations behind y'all's caucus? No, I've been on the railroad for 16 years and, you know, in that time and also speaking with some of the, the guys that have already worked at the railroad for 30 years, I mean, people are, they're pissed off, they're frustrated with the local, with the union um, leadership and it's just decades in the making and I couldn't stand back and just see these guys run unopposed. I, I believe that people's the workers should have a choice. I think competition's good for our organization. Um, you know, here at Argentine, we were able to, uh, man, I mean, we, I got to give those guys a shout out because we had about a hundred people come out and vote and, you know, we had the biggest turnout in the nominations of any other local. And I think that really speaks to, you know, it speaks to the bigger picture for the machinists of how people feel about, the leadership we currently have, but, um, you know, I just, I, I, I agree with you guys hundred percent about, you know, this being, we're all in this together, all organizations, you know, we're all in a way we're all in this together, but for machinists, um, we, I, I believe in, in a, in a bottom up approach, you know, that we, if the more we engage people, the better we're going to do. You know, the, the, the more um, that our membership is educated on all the rules and regulations and all that, and that we come together and, and fight together, stand together, I think that we'll do much better. 
And you know, Nathaniel, you mentioned that that there is a there is a um, you know, a, a sense that like yes, this is a machinist's problem that that you know we're trying to fix here, but but that there's that there's more to it outside of outside of you know your own union. And I understand that you know over the course of of these. Uh, the issue with the rail negotiations, the Railroad Workers United were, uh, you know, front and center, really, in the national conversation. Uh, how connected are y'all with uh, Railroad Workers United? Um, we talk. Gotcha. And, and, and how inspired do y'all see your own, uh, you know, your own campaign with the, you know, some other reform slates in the past couple of years that have been, um, that have been successful, like in the UAW and the Teamsters? Yeah. So it, it seems like there's a movement, which is amazing, right? Cause that will, there needs to, there needs to be just a, you know, a kick in the ass here. Right. And there needs mm-hmm. to be just, it's just a complacency and the apathy is, and that's not what a union is supposed to be about. We're supposed to be these activists, right? And then if we see an injustice, we act. If it's a rail carrier or, you know, once you get once you get trained and know, you know, become a troublemaker, you might look around and see injustice in your own union. And that's that's what's going on in the machinist. And I can tell you that I've had a few different people, I'm not gonna say what unions from other rail unions reach out to me and say, I wanna do this in my rail union. How do I get started? Mm. And uh, my first answer is look at your bylaws. Right. Um, we have, so the, the mach- district law 19 is one member, one vote, which is democratic. You know, some of these rail unions have to go to a convention and they, you know, they do their voting on the floor there. But so there's definitely people are being inspired. I don't know how far it's going to go, but um, it's much needed. And one other thing that we Another campaign promise here is we're going to build a coalition with other unions and negotiate. Last, the last uh, contract we had a coalition, and then as soon as the PEB put out their recommendation, you know everyone scattered like cockroaches. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the machinists were the first ones to break out of it, which doesn't doesn't mm-hmm. look good. So there's been some work behind the scenes. Um, I've already been talking to some some other unions and there's definitely interest. You know, there needs to be trust, though, because what the machinists did in the last uh, the last contract vote kind of kind of burned some bridges. But mm. there's a lot of work to be done. Yeah. Sure. Uh, so, you know, Reese, you mentioned that you had a website. Where can folks uh, go to learn more? That is DL19 united.com you can check us out there everyone has a bio that's running with us if you want to throw us a couple dollars to send out some envelopes there's a gofundme going employers and rail and unions cannot contribute that's a dol uh dol law um but yeah check us out and uh june 9th we got a big election and if we win i can guarantee that the contract negotiations are going to be different in about a year and a half on the railroad. All right, Reese, Nathaniel, thanks for talking to us. And we look forward to uh, continuing to uh, watch the campaign unfold. Thank you guys. Thanks y'all. Thanks. 
All right, folks. So the um, and I don't know if this is going to be the last thing that we're going to get to, or if we're going to have some time for some other stuff. But uh, we are going to spend some time uh, taking a look at what happened in the Senate last week. Um, yeah. Bernie Sanders held a hearing on Starbucks union busting. Howard Schultz was called before the committee uh, to testify. He almost didn't, uh, but then he was threatened with, with a subpoena, and so he ended up acquiescing and testifying before the committee. Uh, because it was seemed pretty likely that he would be subpoenaed if he didn't, and I guess he didn't want that on his record or whatever. But uh, you know, so the the hearing was about Starbucks u- union busting, and it has been totally well documented uh, right. across the country. There's really no doubt if you are a fair person that Starbucks has violated the law in response to the union campaign. Uh, But throughout the hearing, Schultz denied lawbreaking, and this first clip that we've got for you today is pretty indicative of his stance throughout the hearing. All right, let me get these queued up here. Do you understand that in America, workers have a fundamental right to join a union and collectively bargain to improve wages, benefits, and working conditions? Do you understand that? I understand, and we respect the right of every partner who wears a green apron, whether they choose to join a union or not. Are you aware that NLRB judges have ruled that Starbucks violated federal labor law over 100 times during the past 18 months? far more than any other corporation in America. Sir, Starbucks Coffee Company unequivocally, and let me set the tone for this very early on, has not broken the law. Are you aware that on March 1st, 2023, an administrative law judge found Starbucks guilty of, quote, egregious and widespread misconduct, end quote, widespread coercive behavior, and showed, quote, a general disregard for the employee's fundamental rights, end quote, in a union organizing campaign that started in Buffalo, New York in 2021. Are you aware of that? I'm aware that those are allegations, and Congress has created a process that we are following, and we're confident that those allegations will be proven false. All right, Mr. Schultz. Wow. They're not just allegations. They are rulings from administrative law judges. Just because he has appeals left does not mean that they are only simply allegations. They are rulings from judges with detailed evidence. I mean, you can go and read the rulings right? with citations to the evidence as to why they are violating the law. It is not just allegations and the idea that you can get away with saying that is just is wild is wild yeah to say right out the gate we haven't broken the law right are you fucking kidding me like really dude really senator we haven't broken the law exactly and senator chris murphy from connecticut i believe is is where he's from he lays it out it just 
just how silly it is, the idea that Schultz is asking us to believe that Starbucks has not broken the law. Right. To square your testimony in which you insist that you rigorously follow the law yes. with, with overwhelming evidence from the organizations that are charged with enforcing American labor law, that that is not the case. It is akin to someone who has been ticketed for speeding a yeah. hundred times yeah. saying, I've never violated the law because every single time, every single time the cop got it wrong. That, that would not be a believable contention if someone was to make that before the committee. And so um, I find it hard to believe your insistence that notwithstanding this extraordinary set of decisions, reinstating workers, forcing stores to be reopened, that you are in fact consistently abiding by the law as your testimony is before this committee. I, I don't. Yeah, and before that, Howard Schultz actually cited the case of the seven Memphis baristas who were fired and then ordered to be reinstated as an example of how the deck is stacked against him and how actually no the we haven't violated the law and this is this is how and what he doesn't tell the folks there is that the mechanism that actually forced the reinstatement of those workers was initiated by a Trump appointed federal district court judge mm. A Trump appointee said that Starbucks has violated the law so egregiously that they must reinstate these baristas. And he wants you to believe that just because there are appeals left in that process, that process has not totally played out yet. Just because there are appeals left, he wants you to believe that not only in that case, where the workers were able to get a Trump appointee to side with them, not only in that case, but in every one of the hundreds of cases against Starbucks across the country that they are not guilty. Right. It's absurd. It strains credulity. It's absolutely wild. And he also, you know, throughout this, he talks about, oh, I've got... I've got so much respect for everybody who puts on the green apron. He loves that phrase. The people who put on the green apron. He loves that phrase. And something that is indicative of the actual amount of respect that Starbucks and its corporate managers have for people who put on the green apron was on display in the hearing. Because... Schultz was first to testify, and then immediately after Schultz, there was an intermission, and then after that, there was a second panel to come on after Schultz. The panel included one Starbucks worker, a former Starbucks worker, who alleges that he was wrongfully fired, a um, expert on labor law, and then also, funny enough, former Alabama congressperson Bradley Byrne uh, for <laughs> representing a quote-unquote whistleblower from the National Labor Relations Board about the unfair election process um, that took place in Kansas at one election. Uh, the Starbucks corporate managers all left 
when the Starbucks workers time to testify came up. Hmm. The workers and the managers all heard Howard Schultz testify first. And then immediately after Schultz finished testifying, everybody from the government, from the company side left. Everybody from the company side left. They didn't even have enough respect for these workers to put on a face and sit through their testimony. And that is consistent. That's totally consistent with what we hear from Starbucks workers all across the country who <clears throat> in the bargaining sessions that have happened, and we'll talk about this later, but in the bargaining sessions that have happened, they describe being treated with contempt, not even by Starbucks management, who are largely silent at the bargaining table, but by the Littler Mendelssohn attorneys that they have hired. Being treated with contempt and Starbucks workers report that you can tell on their faces that they ha hate having to even be in the room with a working person, much less having to sit on the other side of a table from them as an ostensible equal. That's the kind, and, and they, they displayed that. They displayed that level of contempt at the hearing last week. It's just, just totally disgusting. Um, and in this hearing that Howard Schultz testified at, Howard Schultz, you know, former Democratic candidate for president, right? That he was able to become a candidate for president just because he was a billionaire. I mean, think about that. I have money, so I'm qualified to be president of the United States. And let us not forget that, that 2016 happened. candidate right. Hillary Clinton wanted him to be her secretary of labor. That's always great to uh, always great to include when we talk about Howard Schultz. Um, his only friends in that hearing were Republicans. And this goes to, you know, we, we talked, uh, you know, I, we didn't plan this, but, but there has been a bit of a through line from the, during the episode today of how, you know, quote unquote wokeness or uh, a liberal veneer is used cynically by corporations to obscure over their interest in lording over their employees in, uh, you know, abusing their employees in many ways. And, you know, I think that, that, that we can see this from Starbucks because, uh, up until, you know, the workers started to unionize, there was this idea of Starbucks as kind of a model employer, even among the, you know, Democrats. And it's become more and more clear as the story, uh, as, you know, workers continue to unionize, that, uh, that it was just that, a veneer over any other company. Right, right. Uh, yeah, because they had this, like, pseudo-progressive image, um, you know, and it was very shallow, but mm -hmm. it was out there. And uh, it also had opposition from the far right. Right. Uh, because, you know, I can't speak to everywhere, but... Certainly down here in Alabama, we had plenty of folks who thought and still think Starbucks is anti-Christian. Mm -hmm. They're, they're anti-Christian. Right. Probably because of a cup having to do with right. Christmas, I, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, you don't get too many sophisticated answers when you pry for something like that. Uh, but yeah, they're, they're, 
there's some fascination, I think, with Starbucks and being uh, too woke, too right. progressive, whatever it may be. And it, so it's funny to see that, you know, Republican legislate Republican senators, you know, are coming to his defense when <laughs> they're on base doesn't mm. like Starbucks, or at least a significant amount of the base. Now, it really is amazing that they just can't help themselves. Like, you know, this, this, it really is. The, the base has been activated against Starbucks in many ways throughout the years. Right. Uh, because of whatever design Weren't that they, they. I think that was a very uh, important front in the war on Christmas. Right, right. That, right. that theater saw a lot of action. And the idea that the Republican senators could not help themselves but be on the side of a corporation despite all of this, you know, the anti-Starbucks animus that's been circling around on, on right-wing radio. It's just really kind of fascinating. Right. That, yeah, it's, the, it's wild. Well, you know, their class allegiance comes out um, yeah. when push comes to shove. They, they love to spew a lot of bullshit in their media op- apparatus that they feed to, you know, the normal folks, right, the regular viewers, um, get mad at Starbucks. Mm-hmm. They hate Jesus. Right. And uh, then turn around and defend their billionaire, union-busting, law-breaking asshole CEO. Right. And so, you know, Rand Paul's response, Rand Paul's kind of opening statement uh, for the minority in the Senate was pretty uh, emblematic of, you know, a lot of what we saw from the Republicans. So let's play this first clip from uh, from Rand Paul to see what they had to say. I kind of don't want to, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> Ayn Rand's Howard Rorick points out the ingratitude that man has for the entrepreneur, the creator. Thousands of years ago, the first man discovered how to make fire. He was probably burnt at the stake he taught the others to light. Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> I mean, just listen to that. Listen to that. The aggrievement, the persecution complex there. I mean, it's just totally wild. And then he goes on to say, like, oh, you know, Starbucks didn't invent fire, but they did. You know, they're admirable. Blah, 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 blah. You know, I wish he could have just come up there and said, haters are going to hate. Mm. And Howard Schultz has a lot of haters. So I'm going to support him. Yeah. He and could then, have said that. And honestly, that would have made more sense than, yeah. than the not. I'm not surprised he would quote her in his hearings <laughs> in his very first fucking paragraph. Not yeah. surprised. His first, his first two words was Ayn Rand. Wild. Let, yeah. and, and then, so let's, let's play the second clip from Rand Paul about, about why he thinks, why he thinks that Starbucks is being attacked right now. Convincing the public to buy very expensive coffee is not the discovery of fire, but still it deserves respect. Instead, mm-hmm. Congress convenes today not to praise Starbucks, but to bury them. The hearing today is convened to attack a private company for its success, when its Hmm. success has benefited both customers and its employees alike. We've heard of the average wages, over $17. We've heard of the 401k plans. We've heard of the parental leave, even for part-time employees. Starbucks giving away tens of millions of dollars each year. They have 100% tuition and fee for bachelor's degree. Maybe it doesn't sound like too bad a place to work. Yeah, well, you know what, uh, Rand? If it's not so bad a place to work, then why don't you go work there? Right? And Isn't that that's what we're supposed to say? Right? Right. Oh, you don't like you don't like your job? Go get another job. Yeah. Well, if you like that job, maybe you should take it. Right. Maybe you should take it. But also, uh, 
here's a question, Adam. Was the hearing titled The Poverty Wages of Starbucks? An expose. Is that what the title of the hearing was? You know, I don't think it was. Uh, was it about um, Starbucks doesn't offer any health care at all? Was that the title of the hearing? Uh, you know, no, I don't, I don't think mm. so. Let's hear. Okay, well, uh, now I'm a bit confused. Now I'm, I'm a bit confused. Was the title of the hearing uh, Why Success is Always Bad? Close. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you're getting I'm, closer I'm, I'm there, gonna, right? Yeah. I, I'm gonna need my. Uh, I'm gonna need my memory jogged. Let's. Uh, let Let's go to Bernie Sanders, where he tells. Um, uh, in response to Mark Wayne Mullen, um, uh, who is who went on a really bizarre tirade against Bernie Sanders and his book writing. Yeah. Um, well, he's was, still kind of. He's still kind of grieving over getting his ass whipped by yeah. the Teamsters in that hearing. Yeah. But in in response to that, uh, Bernie, as always on message, he reminded people what the hearing is about. Furthermore, what this hearing is about is whether or not you talk about being pro-union. Really, what this hearing is about is whether workers have the constitutional right to form a union. The evidence is overwhelming, not from me, but from the National Labor Relations Board, is that time after time after time, despite what Mr. Schultz is saying, Starbucks has broken the law and has prevented workers from joining unions to collectively bargain for decent wages and benefits. Senator Baldwin. Oh, that's right. That's right. Uh, Rand Paul must have must have not gotten the memo that is evident from the title of the hearing. He, he must not have realized that, in fact, the hearing was not about what are the particulars of the benefits package that's offered at Starbucks. It was about whether or not workers in this country have the constitutional right to freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of association in the workplace. That's what it was about. It wasn't about how much money Howard Schultz has. It wasn't about this or that or the other thing. Those are ancillary things that can be brought up related to that, potentially, if it's relevant. But the fundamental thing is, is Starbucks violating the law? And how are they violating the law? And the answer is obviously yes. And how they violated the law is evident throughout the hearing i mean we're talking over a thousand violations of the law a thousand over a thousand and what in one year's time maybe um maybe you know it's yeah it's really egregious and you know last i checked mr Rand paul liked to talk about freedom love to talk about freedom uh, is this not an issue of freedom? The ability to organize with your coworkers, your speech, your assembly. It's, I mean, if ever there was something about freedom to discuss here, mm. Mr. Paul, here's your opportunity. But time after time, just as Starbucks violates the law, Republicans show whose side they're on. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that's and that's how you know. That's how you know that the company's side has no argument. It's all built on sand because they never address the argument. They never look 
and see, okay, let's look at this case. Right. Did or did they not... Haven't, they haven't come up with over a thousand right. explanations. Exactly, for exactly. These violations, and right? so they always try to obfuscate, and they always say, oh, you're being attacked for your success. Oh, woe is me. I'm a billionaire. People hate me. Oh, woe is me. And and and, 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 and I'm not going to be a part of a, of a witch hunt. Explain to us how it's a witch hunt, Rand. Explain that to us. If it's a witch hunt, you should have no problem at all disentangling all of the ways in which all thousand of the allegations against Starbucks are bullshit. Right. Just prove it to us. Yeah, and it, it really, it pisses me off to hear that kind of language, you know, witch hunt. Okay, well, first of all, do you know what they did to the witches? Right. Um, <laughs> it was a little bit worse than testifying before Congress. Because here's yeah. the thing. What Howard Schultz endured this week is probably the biggest consequence the man will ever face right. for any of this. Exactly. Exactly. I that mean, is how weak the labor yeah. law is in this country, that that is probably the extent to it. And, you know, I get that Senator Sanders is actually using his capacity as chairman of the health committee to do something, to try to be proactive and actually respond to the issues of people in this country. And so I appreciate Senator Sanders for what he's doing. Uh, and I guess it's blowing some people's minds right. that they might actually back up labor law in Congress. Um, you know, th there's a never ending stream to be tough on crime, tough mm -hmm. on crime. Right. The same motherfuckers talking like this and hearing would love for you to be tough on crime. Right. But it's only some kind of crime. It's only some kind of criminals, right? Yeah. So it's not a witch hunt. Congress has had hearings that were witch hunts. We've had the Red Scare, and mm -hmm. it helped devastate the labor movement in this country, and we still have not recovered from that. We are still suffering from that witch hunt. This guy is a billionaire lawbreaker. A rampant violations of the law time after time. And the worst thing that happens to him is he has to sit there and testify under oath, which obviously made no difference to him because he still fucking lied. Right. And that was the worst thing that's going to happen to him over this. He's not going to lose his billions. He's not going to ever face a day in jail. He's never going to lose his freedom. He's no. never going to suffer consequences, real consequences like the workers in Starbucks have had to face as a result of his bullshit. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and, you know, uh, another one of the ways that they try to obfuscate and try to uh, deploy a defense for Starbucks, and, and Romney is the one who deployed this one, uh, to insulate these companies from criticism, they'll say that you can't criticize unless you're a job creator. Let's listen to that. Oh, God. I, I recognize at the outset there's some irony uh, to a non-coffee-drinking Mormon uh, conservative uh, defending a Democrat candidate for president in perhaps one of the most liberal companies in America. Uh, that being said, I, I also think it's somewhat rich that... Uh, uh, that uh, that you're being grilled by people who have never had the opportunity to uh, create a single job, uh, and yet they believe that they know better how to do so, and what's best for the American worker, and what's best for the American economy, what's best for growth. The idea that 
I mean, this this also showcases the elitism of the, you know the fact that he's defending this guy at all really showcases the elitism of of you know some of these Republican politicians that you know that they can't help themselves. We we talked about that. They can't help themselves but come to the defense of a quote unquote liberal company because it's a company. Well, another way that they showcase their elitism is that they want to silo off from criticism job creators, bosses, executives, companies. They want to silo off from criticism uh, uh, those companies from anybody that is not one of their own. If you're not in this big club, then you're then your your uh complaints or concerns or your voice doesn't matter because you're not a job creator. You're not a job creator. You don't have millions or billions of dollars in the bank. So what you have to say just doesn't matter, little guy. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. Because there are workers there. Half of that Half of that room was filled up with Starbucks workers, and he was trying to direct it at Sanders, right? That's who he's trying to direct it at. But Sanders isn't the one levying the criticism. Sanders is, in some ways, a an amplification of the criticism, but the criticism is coming from the workers. He didn't pull this out of his ass, right? This came from the workers. He's telling these workers who are in that hearing and all across the country at Starbucks stores and at any other place. If you work for a living, you got to shut your damn mouth because you don't know anything. You got to listen to your betters, listen to people like me who have a million dollars and shut your damn mouth. That's what he's telling you. That's what he's telling you. Um... And I also wanted to, you know, this, this, the idea the job creator is of course a myth. It's of course a myth, uh, because consumers are the ones that create jobs. You know, they can't, they can't create a job out of nothing. There has to be, there has to be something there that created the wealth for the job to be paid for. And that something is, uh, consumption and labor, right? And so it's a myth on that ground, but also there's some more deconstruction to do about that term. And uh, I was listening to the Majority Report last week, and Emma Vigeland did a really good job pulling out some stuff from Mitt Romney's past that maybe complicates his perception of himself as a quote-unquote job creator. It's a little bit of a long clip, but I think it's worth it. Let's play that. They're not job creators. They're job gatekeepers. And oftentimes, Ooh. in Mitt Romney's case in particular as well, they're job killers. Old article from 2011 by Michael Barbaro uh, from the New York Times, now uh, the, the Daily guy, wrote about Mitt Romney in the midst of his presidential campaign. By the green-hued yardsticks of Wall Street, the 1990s buyout of an Illinois medical company by Mitt Romney's private equity firm was a spectacular success. Mr. Romney's company, Bain Capital, sent a team of 10 turnaround experts from Boston to ferret out waste Motivate, motivate executives and study untapped markets. By the time the Harvard MBAs from Bain were finished, sales at the medical company Dade International had more than doubled. The business acquired two of its rivals and Mr. Romney's firm collected $242 million, a return eight times its investment. Whoa, that's a lot of job creation, right? 
But an examination of the day deal, which Mr. Romney approved and presided over, shows the unintended human costs. Barbaro, let's not unintended. Human costs and messy financial consequences behind the brand of capitalism that he practiced for 15 years. At Bain Capital's direction, Dade quadrupled the money it owed creditors and vendors. It took steps that propelled the business towards bankruptcy. And in waves of layoffs, it cut loose 1,700 workers in the United States, including Brian and Kristen Shoemaker, who lost their jobs at the plant in Westwood, Massachusetts. Staggered, Mr. Shoemaker wondered, how could the bean counters just come in here and say, hey, it's over? They interview um, some of the workers that lost their jobs. Bain and a small group of investors bought data in 1994 with mostly borrowed money, limiting their risk. They extracted cash from the company at almost every turn, paying themselves nearly $100 million in fees, first for buying the company and then for helping to run it. Later, just after Mr. Romney stepped down from his role, Bain took $242 million out of the business in a transaction that, according to bankruptcy documents and several former date officials, weakened the company. Even some people who benefited from the payday and found it reasonable at the time now question it. Um, essentially, they, they pushed the, the company into that bankruptcy. On the campaign trail, Mitt Romney has taken a tough love approach to the economy, suggesting that the best remedy for the housing market was to allow foreclosures to hit the bottom. It was the same approach he took with Bain, as he explained in an interview to The New York Times in 2007 when asked about layoffs at the companies that he bought. Sometimes the medicine is a little bitter, he said, but it is necessary to save the life of a patient. The patient being Bain and all the hundreds of millions of dollars that they're making from this. And it goes on and on. I mean, Bain ended up uh, helping this company, Dade Acquire, uh, a company called DuPont, part of uh, the, the a division in DuPont, a diagnostics division in 1996. Um, and another medical testing company for DuPont. Uh, they had a plant in Puerto Rico after Dade, under the direction of Bain Capital, acquired DuPont. It closed its plant in Puerto Rico. All but a few of its nearly 300 workers were laid off. Arsenio Munez Rosado, a 51-year-old father who has spent 23 years at the plant, started out as a groundskeeper, sank into a debilitating depression. Still jobless six months after he was let go, he tried to commit suicide with a full bottle of Xanax pills. It was the first of several attempts. Job creators. Yeah. So, you know, maybe you in the audience have never created a job, but you've probably also not cost 2,000 people their jobs. Right. Uh, and you've probably not gotten a hundred million dollars to do that. I mean, just the idea, I mean, just the hubris, the hubris of that statement. Having that, I mean, I, I don't know, maybe he doesn't have that in the back of his head. But having done that, and then being able to call yourself a job creator. The job create a job creator. It's just insane. Absolutely insane. But that's not the end of uh Romney making a fool of himself. Uh and and 
<laughs> you know, I talked about Democratic politicians not knowing labor law and Republican politicians don't know labor law either because Romney accidentally uh, praised Starbucks for violating labor law. Let's listen to this. First would note that within your company, there are probably some stores that are union, some that are non-union. Do the non-union store employees get paid less than the union store employees? The starting wage has been the same. The only difference is the benefits that we created in May. And my understanding under the law is that we were not allowed to provide those benefits to people who are organizing to join the union. And so, in fact, the non-union stores are actually a little better uh, total package than, than the union stores. Whoops. <laughs> Whoopsie daisy. Yep. Uh, <laughs> what he said, by the way, which he repeated over and over mm -hmm. and over again during the hearing, uh, is so blatantly untrue. I'm not yeah. an attorney, but I knew right away yeah. when they announced that they were uh, providing benefits for some stores, but not for others, and it was based on the union status. That's bullshit. Like, yeah. 100%, there is no legal justification for it. Uh, by the way, Starbucks Workers United already put it in writing that they have no objections to, you know, credit card tipping and these other benefits uh, being rolled out in every store, including the stores that they currently represent. Yes. So yeah, well, there's no goodness. justification. Yeah. Well, thank goodness Tina Smith pushed him on this because Senator Tina Smith from where is she from? Montana? I don't know. But... I don't know. But she pushed him on this. And I'm so thankful for that because I thought I seriously thought we were going to get through the whole hearing without anybody pushing him on that because he kept saying it and he just kept saying it and kept saying it. Oh, it's illegal for us. To... And he kept saying it. And I was like, Anyone oh, who knew anything about right. labor law knew that was so untrue. Exactly, exactly. I was I was seriously worried that we were going to get through the whole hearing and nobody was going to push him on that. But she did, and so let's listen to this, where she pushes him into maybe admitting a little something that maybe he didn't mean, mean to. Still, um, Mr. Schultz, you repeatedly call your employees partners. Do you value your employees or your partners that want to join a union or have joined a union, do you value them as much as you value those that have not yet joined a union? Now, we have respect for every single partner who wins a green apron, regardless of their choice to, vote a, to go for a union. So yesterday I had the opportunity to meet with um, some unionized Starbucks workers from Minnesota, Gracie and Elizabeth, and they tell me that uh, Starbucks is cutting their weekly hours they estimate that they're losing $4 an hour in wages because the company won't allow them in unionized stores to access credit card tipping um, when that's available to workers in non-unionized um, shops. And they tell me that they are simultaneously understaffed in their stores and unable to get enough hours to pay their bills. If these folks are your partners, why are you treating them differently than the non-unionized workers? When we raise wages uh, in May, uh, we were, uh, my understanding was that we, under the law, we did not have the unilateral right to provide those benefits to partners who were involved in collective bargaining. And that is, that is why. So you have said that several times during this yeah. meeting. You've said that you cannot legally provide these benefits without bargaining over them. But you know, I'm sure, that the union has specifically stated in this letter 
um, July 15th, 2022, that they waived any objection uh, to bargaining on this. It says in the letter, to this end, the union hereby waives any objection that we might have to Starbucks providing union represented employees with any wage or benefit improvements provided to unrepresented employees. So I don't think this, I think, I, I, I just think you're wrong. Oh, let me let me try and explain. Uh, there are an array of wages and benefits that need to be negotiated in the collective bargaining process. It, it just it would not be proper to take one piece of the puzzle out of the negotiating process since the union, the people who have joined the union have decided that they want to negotiate a contract. It is our preference and our right to negotiate that contract fairly and objectively, but not in piecemeal. Yep. So. Um, I think that the way the law reads is that there is an exception to that requirement to negotiate when the employees make a clear and unmistakable waiver to bargaining. But let me ask. Exactly. Exactly. And he and he he he, he said it there. He said it is our preference. And he says his right. And I don't. And that's not the case. But it is our preference to negotiate the contract in whole and not piecemeal. I think I I think he ought to be uh whatever the uh uh discipline is for lying to Congress he ought to he ought to face that. Right. Because clearly you're, you're not supposed to lie under oath. Um, right. And that's supposed to be the rule. That is clearly um, what happened there and he was clearly aware of it because uh Senator Smith was able to push him into admitting that oh well, you know, well, I know that I was saying that I thought it was illegal before, but now, you know, okay, you pushed me, so really it's actually just a preference that I got. It's a preference that I have. It's a preference to not uh, give these workers the same benefits that all of the other employees have at my stores. It's a preference. Right. It's I mean, a preference. It, it, it also just boggles common sense, right? Like common sense dictates, okay, you've got these people who are organizing, who want to make things better on their job. Um they are right. not going to turn down the new benefits that are being offered. They're going right. to, you know, the smart ones are going to realize the only reason they're offering this shit in the first place is because we've been organizing. Right. Because we've been unionizing. And so now they're trying to sweeten the deal a little bit. They're trying to buy people off a little bit. Uh, of course, we'll take your extra money. Of course, we'll take the extra benefits. It's yeah. And, ju and actually, just a couple of days before the hearing... The NLRB came out with a ruling saying that not only is it, hey, actually, you know what? It's legal. It would be legal if you gave these employees credit card tipping as they have waived their right to negotiate over the same benefit that you're giving to all the non-union stores. It would be legal if you did that. Not only are they saying that two days before this hearing, they said that the withholding of that benefit was illegal. The NLRB in a ruling issued on March the 27th, said that Starbucks illegally withheld a major benefit, the credit card tipping. And now the NLRB is ordering that they give back pay to the nearly 7,000 workers that it's been withheld from. And so we'll see how much back pay that is. But if you start talking about 7,000 workers, $4 an hour, and these people are working 20, 30 hours a week, you can easily start, you're looking at, millions of dollars potentially and so you know i hope that they uh you know get them for all they're worth there but 
the idea that after that ruling comes out, you're still saying, not only are you saying, because through that, I, I listened closely to this hearing and he said, both we thought at the time that it was illegal, which is almost half defensible. If you want to be stupid, you can pretend to believe that and people will maybe buy it. Right. Never mind the essentially unlimited budget for lawyers. Right. right. And the fact that they have retained some of the highest priced lawyers in, in the game. Right. But yeah, I guess you could f- try to believe that at one point in time they received bad advice. Yes. But after the union waived their right to that, and then after the NLRB ruled that withholding that uh, uh, benefit was illegal, the idea that you could still say, because he did, he maintained it in the present tense. He said that, I believe, present tense, that it is not legal for us to do that. It's not believable. It is not believable that that's actually what he thought in his head. Uh, well, he should be arrested for perjury, for lying right. to Congress, whatever that is, and and yeah, sent to prison for that. Because that was a clear, obvious lie. Clearly, obviously lying under oath there, Howard Schultz. Just unbelievable. And yeah, and so let, let's look at this... Um, uh, additionally, you know, part of this issue is not only are they not giving this benefit, these benefits to them piecemeal, but they're not coming to first contracts. They're not coming to first contracts. Right. They're acting in bad faith. A hundred percent. And so let's and, and we're going to skip uh, uh, the virtual shareholders one and go to the single store uh, clip. And then we're going to go back to the virtual shareholders one. But the the he explains why. It's been so hard for him to schedule meetings to negotiate on these first contracts, which is what he lays the bl- he lays the blame at the workers for the reason that they've not got a first contract yet. Let's of listen course. to this. Under your leadership, Starbucks has repeatedly refused to bargain with any of the 7,000 workers in nearly 300 stores where workers have voted to represent themselves through union. The first group of workers to win their election have been waiting more than 460 days to reach a first contract. Mr. Schultz, will you commit right now that within 14 days of this hearing, Starbucks will exchange proposals with the union, something it has refused to do for more than 450 Mm. days, so that meaningful progress can be made to bargain a first contract in good faith? Will you make that commitment? Because... The arrangement that was made by the union and the NLRB in Buffalo to negotiate one single store at a time. We have met over 85 times for a single store. We've tried to arrange over 350 separate meetings. We've said publicly, and I say it here again, that we believe that face-to-face negotiations is the way to proceed. And the reason I want to make that point is that there have been safety issues in which Starbucks managers have been outed on social media. There are privacy issues. We don't want to do it on Zoom. We are prepared to meet face-to-face on a single-store issue. Will you make a promise to this committee that you will exchange proposals with the union so that we can begin to make meaningful progress? On a single-store basis, we will continue to negotiate in good faith. That's what we'll do. 
Three minutes over. You haven't given proposals in over 450 days, and you're going to say that you're still acting in good faith? Yeah. Jesus. It's just insane. And the idea that you have to have a face-to-face meeting uh, is just silly. And, you know, the idea that, oh, they've been outed on social media. Uh, well, you know, yeah. maybe don't. <laughs> it's called LinkedIn. <laughs> right. Anyone can go there and find out where you work, dipshit. Like, exactly. Exactly. You, if you're embarrassed to be... <clears throat> In management, if you're embarrassed to be a union buster, if you're embarrassed to go into a bargaining room and act in bad faith towards workers, um, maybe don't do that. Go find another job, right? Yeah. That's what you tell the baristas. You don't like it here? Go find another job. Why don't you find another fucking job? Exactly. Exactly. And you are not, under the National Labor Relations Act, you are not entitled, the employer is not, to whatever ground rules you want. You can't do that. You can't do that. And so you cannot not negotiate because the workers want the negotiations to be more open. And the reason that the workers want them to be more open is, or, well, the reason that the employers don't want them to be open, the reason that Starbucks want these things to be hidden, to happen behind closed doors, is because they don't want their the rest of their employees to figure out what they actually think about them. That's the issue there, right? Because if they're if they're if they are negotiating in good faith and the workers are the ones being unreasonable, well, why would you be worried about other people seeing that? Mm. What would be the issue? What would be the issue? And it's also important to note as a as a a point of fact, uh, the agreement that he mentions about uh, negotiating store by store is fictional. That was not the agreement that was reached. The uh, uh, arrangement that was reached by the NLRB and the workers was to have elections store by store. They uh, were actually interested in larger regional or national negotiations, uh, but Starbucks is refusing to do that. Starbucks is the one that is necessitating single store by store negotiations, not the workers. Um, so that's an important thing to mention. And he talks about the importance of face-to-face communication. And, and later on in the thing, he, he talks about how, oh, you know, it's it's just the best. It's better to talk face-to-face. And I'm sympathetic to that. I'm sympathetic to that, that, you know, I like face-to-face communication, um, but it's not, uh, <laughs> it, it's not an excuse to not bargain with your employees. Um, but... Senator uh, Ben Ray Lujan from New Mexico, I believe, he put a he threw a kink in that story about how, oh, you know, face to face communication is so important. Uh, Let's play this and see how see what their stance is with respect to shareholder meetings. Mm. There you go. Shareholders can meet via Zoom, but not workers. There you go. Uh, so you know, I mentioned throughout that you know this is that that you know a lot of this is just it's just aggrievement, right? It's just aggrievement, and so I wanted to pull out some of the worst stuff about how you know just how aggrieved these people are pretending to be and so here we have uh uh howard schultz making the case that a billionaire is a slur let's uh let's let's hear that see how compelling it is this this monarch of billionaire let's just get get at that okay i grew up in federally subsidized how let me finish i grew up in federally subsidized housing my parents never owned a home i came from nothing 
I thought my entire life was based on the achievement of the American dream. Yes, I have billions of dollars. I earned it. No one gave it to me. And I've shared it constantly with the people of Starbucks. And so anyone who keeps labeling this billionaire thing is... Mr. Shelter, I, I don't mean to cut you off. We have time limits here, and you have well, the I'm opportunity. Saying, I, I'm not cutting no, you it's, off. It's your, it's your moniker constantly. It's unfair. No, it is I not. Earn, you have had more time. Well, I've been generous with the time. Yeah, no, I'm but, sorry. But, Mr. Chairman... We have a room yeah. full of people. Yeah. We have a panel to go after you. Fine, You're not the fine. only person testifying. Okay. Senator Cassidy. Billionaire is a slur. According to Howard Schultz. Wow. And he and he earned his I mean the thing is is like, oh, you know, oh, that he earned it. billionaire. Well, if you earned it, then you should be proud of it. Right. And he talks about nobody gave it to I mean, the idea that he was able to say with a straight face, I earned it, no one gave it to me immediately after talking about how he grew up in uh federally subsidized housing. Right. Like the idea that you don't see that. Like I you know, on one hand, I understand how people can think it's cool that somebody can grow up from federally subsidized housing to be a person of import, right? Be nicer. It would be even cooler if he wasn't such a piece of shit, right? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that's a story there. That's an accomplishment. But yeah. you didn't get there on your own by virtue of the fact that you lived in subsidized housing, but that the government subsidized. Society paid for you to have a roof over your head. I mean, society in more ways than for the average person, right? I mean, for the, just the average person, just the average person, just anybody who's never had any quote unquote welfare or, or whatever, even those people, they don't have a claim to earning quote unquote everything that they make because we're all products of our surroundings. And our surroundings are created by society. Right. Our schools are built by society. Our schools are, our teachers teach our students that we didn't, you know, that we don't pay for them. Everybody pays for them. Everybody pays for the roads that we have. Everybody pays for social security, for Medicare. Everybody pays for all, everybody pays in, everybody takes out a little bit, right? But he had... Even more than that, as somebody who came up with federally subsidized housing, which is great, and I support that, but the idea that you can come away and say, in the same breath as you mentioned that, nobody gave it to me. Nobody gave it to me. I earned it. I earned it. I mean, hubris. The hubris, the aggrievement, the, you know, it's just, it's really... Yeah, I mean, makes you wonder who went out and Harvested all those coffee beans. Yeah. It does who make you wonder that. who uh, produced the coffee? Who actually made the drinks? Who served the drinks? Did I mean, Howard must have been really busy since he right. earned it all by himself. Right. right. He must be in a lot of places. Uh, this woman from the Heritage Foundation also took part in the Aggrievement Fest. Let's, uh, well, they're good to, for that, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, let's listen to what she had to say. Mm -hmm. 
Boo fucking who. You know what else is dehumanizing and destructive? Management. There you go. There you go. You yeah, ask maybe, most workers just, in this world. Yeah, maybe don't be dehumanizing and destructive, and we won't call you dehumanizing and destructive. There's an you know, idea. if the label fits, if right? The, yeah, if the shoe fits, then, you know. Uh, if you don't want to uh, have Scabby the rat in front of your place of business, don't do the kind of shit that attracts Scabby the rat to your business. Exactly right. Exactly Consequences. Right. Sorry, you don't like consequences. I thought I thought we were all supposed to be responsible for our own choices. Mm, there you go. Uh, another thing that they were complaining about is uh, the fact that um, somebody salted their business, and he was he was talking about Jazz Brizak, who uh, is a uh, who who did salt Starbucks, and that's a good and cool thing. Uh, she previously worked for SEIU. Uh, she went to, you know, organizing schools there. And uh, she's a Rhodes Scholar. And instead of becoming a McKinseyite ghoul working for, you know, corporations like Starbucks and trying to figure out how they can squeeze the most profit from the uh, most amount of people and cut jobs and all of this and funnel more wealth to the top, uh, she decided uh, with her, you know, with her learning that she was going to try to help working people, which is cool as shit. But that is not the opinion that Howard Schultz has of her. Thank you, Mr. Can I can I come back and, and just address something you said, if you don't mind? Uh, you talked about Buffalo. I uh, just want to clarify. But when I understand the activities in Buffalo began in August of 21, I was not the CEO at the time. I came back in April of 22. But I want to share with the committee uh, what we have found out about the organizing in Buffalo. And I think this is important for everyone to know. The organizing in Buffalo began with an individual who we later found out was paid for and joined Starbucks as an employee in 2020. And even though we hired her on her own merit, we found out that she was paid for by the very union trying to organize Starbucks. I'm going to have to cut you off. Uh, so Nick, that was a good story. We'll come back to that because it sounds like something to do. I, I hope you do. I'll defer to Senator Mark Wayne Muller. Well, thank you. And uh, considering the chairman doesn't want to hear any of that information because I believe he's pretty biased in his opinion already. Ms. Schultz, I'll give you an opportunity to finish that if you'll do it quickly. Thank you very much. So, as you might imagine, uh, we're very curious to understand what happened in Buffalo. And uh, we later found out that this individual, which, which was hired in 2020, was paid for and under the employment of the union that was basically trying to organize Starbucks. We later found out there was more than one person. And so you might want to ask yourself, uh, what, where's the fairness, right. the objectivity, and the integrity of what we're we're talking about here today. No, and I, I, I mean, it, yeah, that's super sad, super sad. Let's hear. He talks about her again in the hearing, going even a little bit further. Let's play this clip. Any comments upon this person getting paid by the union when she came to your store in an attempt to organize it? Well, if that's not a nefarious act, I don't know what is. Yeah, uh, it does seem just a little bit inorganic. Um, 
nefarious. Nefarious. And he's saying the reason it's nefarious is because she was paid by somebody uh, that was not the Starbucks workers to come and organize them and to explain to them, you know, to organize with them, to help them fight for their uh, for their rights, for better wages, better working conditions, to have a voice themselves. Uh, he thinks that's nefarious because she was paid to do that in part or at one time. Uh, and yet, and yet Starbucks is paying literally millions of dollars, millions of dollars to Littler Mendelssohn attorneys. Right. What's good for, for me is not good for thee. Right. <clears throat> I mean, the idea that, that you can try to third party the union in this way while bringing in an actual literal third party and paying them significantly more than right. the Right, it's union. such a false I equivalence mean, yeah. of resources. Okay, you know, if... If there was one or two salts, one or two people went into Starbucks getting a job there with the the explicit aim of unionizing, and if they had some resources and support from a union, well, good. Right. I'm glad to hear that because it still doesn't get anywhere close to the level of disparity between resources because, as you said, you're talking about hiring some of the, the most uh, nefarious, to use their right. word, nefarious law firms in the country. Uh, and blowing money left and right to try to keep these people out. So yeah, um, and the thing that I and I forgot to pull. It's a historic practice. Mm -hmm. It's always been done. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing nefarious about it. Uh, and certainly, the companies have no qualms about doing their own kind of thing. Yeah, and I pulled the clip, but I forgot to put it in in the OBS. But uh, Bob Casey kind of grills him on uh, this his use of millions of dollars to union bust and how that actually us as taxpayers are subsidizing that because it is legal to write off attorney's fees for union busting law firms for union avoidance as just a regular business cost in the same way that you would wages or uh, capital investment, you know, buying a new coffee machine. You can write that off on your taxes. Well, you can also write off union busting. And so in a way you and I are paying these Littler Mendelssohn attorneys. Uh, but Jazz Brizak is nefarious. Yeah. Give me a fucking break. Um, so we've got this, this last thing from the hearing, and then we're going to wrap up. He, uh, Howard Schultz tries to make the case why unionization is actually... Uh, uh, is actually really bad and people shouldn't do it. Here's part of that case. 21 Starbucks people, partners, work in that store. How many people do you think voted to either become a union or not a union? Take a guess. Not me. I would presume the well, majority. When you hear the number, you'll understand the problem. 21 people in the store, six people voted. Six. Four, four voted to become a union and two voted for not. Now, I'm not saying why the other people didn't vote. That's up to the committee to decide. But you can imagine there's issues going on in a store like that where people work close together and influence people to do one thing versus the other. But here's the problem. Since that store, since six people voted to, to the union, of the seven stores in Vermont, this particular store has twice the level of attrition, and the majority of the people have left the store. 
and the tension that exists in any store that Starbucks has since it's individual stores voting in a small group of people. There is lots of issues that we are dealing with. And overall, in the, in the stores that have voted for union, about 300 are twice the level of attrition that we currently have in the 99% of stores that have not voted for union. But the Vermont thing is not a proxy. The Vermont thing is exactly what's going on around the country. Yeah. There you go. So, uh, you know, oh, well, if you unionize, look, it just, it just, by magic, it makes the thing more tense. And also the implication that, you know, the implication there that, you know, oh, well, these people probably didn't vote because of the intimidation from the other workers. That was obviously the implication, but it's only an implication and there's not any evidence or fact behind that implication because there isn't any, because obviously there almost certainly wasn't any imitate, any intimidation and the Im intimidation that a fellow worker could give somebody is so, so much less than you would get from the company. I mean, the idea, again, this false equivalency, the idea that they're even remotely equal, uh, that it is worth considering them in the same thought is absurd. It's absurd. And then, uh, Maggie Carter from Knoxville, from the uh, Starbucks store that organized the first union in the South, she talks about a little bit about why uh, that attrition rate might be higher at the newly unionized locations. Just five days after announcing our union drive, our regional director drove to our store from out of state and was working alongside my partners attempting to make drinks. It's the first time in my entire time with the company that I've met a regional director in person. Partners suddenly started getting disciplined for minor dress code violations or being five or so minutes late. Every day, it felt as if there was a concerted effort to build a case against partners who showed even the smallest bit of support for the union. Days prior to ballots being mailed out for the election, managers closed our store for hour-long periods, most during peak operating times, to hold impromptu captive audience meetings. It felt like the company was suddenly paying full attention to us and were willing to throw absolutely anything at us to deter us from organizing. And there you go. This tension doesn't just magically appear. It is inflicted on the workers by the boss. And yes, sometimes workers will just want out. They just want it to end. And so they'll leave and they'll try to find a job somewhere else. But that is not because of the workers. It's because of the boss. And the fact that the attrition rate at union stores is higher, if that's the case, which I don't necessarily doubt, that fact makes it all the more evident that the rest of the sh stores need to unionize. Right, right. Because at any point, Starbucks can take away a lot of the tension here mm -hmm. by actually operating in good faith. Reach first contracts with the stores that have unionized. Call off your dogs and your union-busting attorneys. Call off the union-busting campaign and just voluntarily recognize right. unions as they are organized by these workers. If you did that, wow, I imagine there's going to be less tension. Right. Exactly. It's just a thought. I, I mean, obviously they have no intention of doing so, considering their behavior in this hearing, but... Um, yeah, I, I just I can't I can't not be frustrated by that. I mean, at any given point, 
Starbucks can change the direction of this. They can change uh, the tension and, and reduce the tension, the antagonism. They could they could play a big role there. And I've got a feeling it would go over well. In fact, they would probably get a lot better PR than what they've had the last week. Uh, right. And they might even get business from union-minded folks. Right. Uh, you know, so if they had any interest whatsoever in doing the right thing, and it wouldn't even have to be for the right thing, it really could just be to boost their image right. or to boost their sales. And hell, it probably would work. Mm-hmm. But that's how committed they are to busting worker power. Yeah, exactly. And with that, I think that's going to wrap up our coverage of the hearing, and that's going to wrap up overtime, folks. I appreciate everybody hanging out with us. We went a little bit long, but I think hopefully it was worth it. We're uh, And um, make sure that you tune in for Shop Talk Thursday morning. Uh, and come back and tune in again next week. We're going to be playing an interview from the local uh, musicians union. Uh, I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, That's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, So appreciate y'all hanging out with us, folks. Uh, Until next week, all power to the world.